Isaiah chapter 66, excuse me, 65. Our Old Testament reading is Isaiah 65, verses 1 through 5, and then we will come to our New Testament reading in Luke 18, and there we shall settle for the Lord's message this morning. Beloved, in preparation for this message, a very brief lesson on the etymology of the word snooty. Snooty entered into the English lexicon as college slang about 100 years ago. It was a derivation of the word snouty, which of course is a derivation of the word snout. A snooty person is somebody who looks down their nose at other people because they regard themselves as more important than other people, more necessary, more valuable. This is not a phenomenon as new as the word snooty itself. This is as old as the pride of men. This is as old as the fall of man. Men have been afflicted, inflicting snootiness, ever since they decided in their corrupt heart to demand that God boast in the flesh of men. Today our Lord Jesus comes to us upon the threshold of a new year to help us put down and put to death the snootiness of self-righteousness. Let us pray and then read the scriptures. Most gracious God, we come before you now upon the public reading of your word. And on this occasion, Lord, we ask for your help. We ask, Lord God, that you would grant it, that your word would be read in a way that is pleasing, from a heart that is pleasing. Oh, Lord, make it so. And we ask that it would be heard in a way that is pleasing, in hearts that are pleasing. Oh, Lord, make it so. Our gracious God, we are so desperately needy right now that we scarcely know how needy, and we only can learn by your word how needy we are. We need your help so that we can hear and recognize the voice of the Master, that we could, by faith, recognize the authority speaking herein your holy word, And that hearing, we would believe. And that believing, we would indeed be reformed according to scripture in our very lives, in our very affections, in our very conduct, in our ambitions, and in all our ways, conformed evermore to the image of Jesus Christ. Father, we have no ability within our flesh to bring about these good things. These things are brought about by your Holy Spirit, whom you have poured out upon your children by the merits of your Son. And so we ask in his name that your Spirit would be strong and prevail among us. Oh, Lord, we ask that we would not experience this reading and this preaching merely like wind passing over a rock, but, Lord, that you would indeed Give us hearts of flesh. O Lord, visit your people, not according to the measure of our preparation, 
but according to the measure of your grace. We ask for it. We ask for it as beggars in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Isaiah 65, verses 1 through 5. This is God's word. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Luke chapter 18. Reading begins at verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes, of all that I get, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The word of God. To be greatly and effectively wicked, a man needs some virtue. C.S. Lewis wrote those words in his 1942 book, The Screwtape Letters. To be greatly and effectively wicked, a man needs some virtue. If a man is going to go far in the ways of evil, he is going to need an outer shell of goodness. Only then will he be able to successfully develop self-righteousness, an air of superiority, conceitedness, high-mindedness. You see, a man with no virtue is never accused of being self-righteous. Everybody knows he's a slob in the things of immorality. But it's the man with the outer shell of virtue who succeeds in hiding these deep, dark sins of the heart. If a man is really going to let pride and superiority 
reach its full potential in him. He is going to need a mask of virtue to hide these most ugly sins behind. Even the devil disguises himself as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Well, this morning, we receive Lewis's point by looking at the very text that he probably founded it. Luke 18, 9 through 14. Our Lord's parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee, a clergyman in the ancient church of God. The tax collector, a hard-working man known for his corruption, known for cutting corners, known for pocketing the receipts, known for stealing. The Lord brings them both to the temple so that the church of Jesus Christ would stop her snooty self-righteousness. In this parable, the Lord shows us a man who has some virtue, yet behind it, behind the disguise, he is greatly and he is effectively wicked. What is the virtue he hides his true rotten self behind? Well, he is a religious man. Nothing wrong with that. He is a religious leader even. Nothing wrong with that. He approaches God at the right place. Nothing wrong with that. He prays. His prayer is strong with gratitude. Nothing wrong with those. He avoids scandalous sin. And he is rigorous in doing the right things. Nothing wrong there. Yet even with all of this outward moral goodness, this man is greatly and effectively wicked. He refuses to trust in God for his righteousness. This man trusts in himself. To use the language of the Psalms, this Pharisee is his own refuge. He is his own high tower. He is his own rock. He is his own fortress. He is his own deliverer in himself. Will he trust? The man is so effectively wicked, he can make a public approach to God, yet remain an enemy of God. He can make a public approach to God, yet fail to attain the chief blessing of God, justification. To be that close to the things of God, yet that far from God, is a great and effective wickedness. It is just like the devil himself who entered the courts of God to accuse Job, who came that near to the living God, yet was unchanged. At the heart of this kind of wickedness is the heart of man trusting in himself. When a man locates within himself the things upon which he is going to seek his acceptance with God, he is tightening his grip around evil. He is trying to establish a relationship between himself and God where some good he has done or some bad that he has avoided is the sufficient thing to satisfy any debt he has with God. This, beloved, is a great evil. It is a great evil because it is man's attempt to get Almighty God to boast in the works of a sinful man, a creature fallen into corruption. This is what we are doing when we ask God to regard us as acceptable 
or as righteous on the basis of things he finds in us, the good that we have done or the bad we have not done. That is a great evil to ask God, to demand that God accept us on things he finds in us. It will never work. Psalm 138, verse 6 says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. You will never get God to declare you are right with him by reaching for something within yourself and waving it in his face. The only way God will declare you right with him is when you reach for something within God that is only found within God, and that is his mercy, his sacrifice, his sufferings, his humiliation, his obedience, his body, his blood. Only when you use your hands, your head, and your heart to reach for him, the Lord Jesus, only then are you the lowly one he regards. And that is why there is another man in our parable this morning. There's another man here who approaches God, another man who prays, but this other man is not trusting in himself like the first man is. This other man despairs of himself. This other man is poor in spirit. This other man is not shimmering in virtue. But this other man gains the full and the chief blessing of God. He goes home justified. He goes home in possession of the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He goes home as if he never had committed any sin, as if he had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished. That's how this man goes home. He goes home fully accepted and right with God, not because he suddenly became more virtuous than the other man. No, he goes home forgiven and accepted because all his hope before God is something he found in God, God's mercy. Does this mean the tax collector is now excused from a life of virtue? Of course not, and we will come to that again. But this man's reliance on mercy does excuse him from condemnation. His hope in divine mercy has removed him from the reach of divine wrath. Beloved, this is what our teaching is from the Lord Jesus today. And this is what it can do in your life today. If you have ears to hear, you too can go home justified today. If you have ears to hear, you can go home sheltered in the mercy of God instead of remaining exposed to the wrath of God. You will go home having very low thoughts of yourself, but you will have God's acceptance. That's how this works. But if you do not have ears to hear, you will go home just like you came, still thinking very highly of yourself. And that will feel good, but you will go home without the acceptance of God. So I want to consider for a little while 
who we are. I want you to consider for a little while who you are. Let's see if we are numbered among those who foolishly trust in themselves, like the Pharisee. You see, the Pharisee was known as the most conservative clergyman in Jerusalem. The Pharisee was known as the most precise clergyman in Jerusalem. The the Pharisee was known as the most theologically serious and sound in Jerusalem. None of those things are what made the clergy a target for our Lord in this parable. There's nothing wrong with being precise. Nothing wrong with being conservative. Nothing wrong with being sound in your doctrine. But beloved, hear this. There is a great danger among such people to look to their doctrinal works, to look to their conserving works, to look to their serious and sober keeping of God's law, to look to all of that and not look to Jesus Christ. It is my contention that Christians and Reformed churches today are perhaps among the most susceptible to the snooty self-righteousness which the Lord has come to slay as the dragon slayer he is. How he loves us, that he gives us this teaching today. So let's consider who we are. There are two signs in the parable to test ourselves to see if we are those who trust in themselves for acceptance with God. The first sign is that I treat others with contempt. We see this clearly stated in verse 9, to trust in ourselves for righteousness and to treat others with contempt go hand in glove. They belong together. To treat someone with contempt means I am disgusted with them and I keep an arm's length from them very unlike the Lord Jesus Christ. To treat someone with contempt means I think I am better than them, more important than them, more valuable than them. I think they are guilty and I am not. I think they are failures and I am not. So to actively distinguish myself as better than them, I keep them down and away from me. And you know what I use? I use gossip. I use slander. I use mockery, sneering, belittling. These are all the snooty tools of contempt in the service of my ongoing project of self-righteousness. In Isaiah 65.5, which we read, the Lord chastises Israel for treating others with contempt. The Lord said, you are a rebellious people who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me for I am too holy for you. The Lord says, these are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. The ancient church had this holier-than-thou air about it, but it was a stench in God's nostrils, a provocation to his anger. Treating others with contempt is a sign It's a sign that you are clothed in self-righteousness. 
Go and meet Jonah. He will teach you about it. He was the snooty, self-righteous prophet who himself needed to be converted. Treating others with contempt is a sign. Whether it be in our speech, our thoughts, or our actions, contempt is solid evidence of our self-righteousness. You may not easily see your self-righteousness, but it is hard to hide your contempt. Husbands, help your wives with this. Wives, help your husbands with this. If contemptuous language towards others fills your home, it is a revelation to you about how you really think of yourself before God. It is an undeniable revelation of how you really think about yourself before God. You think you are acceptable to God because you are different than other men. And it will then be your best, it'll then be in your best interest to keep reminding yourself of how different you are from other men. You won't be able to pray for those you hold in contempt. You will have no interest to see them blessed by God to escape the sins and escape the foolishness that you think you have escaped by your own wits, by your own wisdom, and not by grace. The second sign before us that you are trusting in yourself for righteousness before God is you use gratitude as a disguise. Look at the Pharisee's prayer in verse 11. God, I thank you. Now that's the disguise of virtue right there. Gratitude. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now this Pharisee, he is full of it full of thanksgiving, full of gratitude. But look carefully at what his gratitude is for. His, he is grateful not for the gains he has made in God's law. He is grateful for gains he has made over other people. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. The Pharisee's gratitude is the gratitude of human comparison. He compares himself with other mortals, other sinners, and he thinks he has achieved something with God because his morals are better than the morals of other men. But what if he looked at his own life against the law of God instead of against other sinners? Would he ever be able to say, God, I thank you that I am so much like your law that my life is the embodiment of your law, would he ever be able to say that in honesty and truly? He could not if he has read his Bible. None are righteous, no, not one. So he makes it all sound less ridiculous by saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. If the Pharisee compared his virtuous life to the law of God, he could only be grateful for one thing, the mercy of God toward transgressors. But that is not what he is grateful for because that is not what he compares his life to. 
Beloved, watch out for your gratitude. Watch out for your gratitude. It is a socially acceptable way to disguise your self-righteousness. If you are grateful that you are not like other men, you are using an earthly court to falsify your own goodness and your own importance, and you are judging yourself falsely. One of the most grateful people in all of American literature is a woman with the name of Ruby Turpin. She is the main character in a short story by Flannery O'Connor titled Revelation. The story is set in the mid-20th century in a town in the American South. The first half of the story has Ruby sitting in the waiting room of a doctor's office with her husband, Claude. And while she is sitting there, Ruby surveys the packed room. And as she looks at all these different people, she begins to thank God for all the things she likes about herself. And this moves from an internal dialogue of thanksgiving to a public dialogue she starts sharing with the woman sitting next to her, who looks a lot like her. Ruby says, I thank God that I'm not white trash. I thank God that I'm not black. I thank God that I have such a good disposition. I thank God that I'm not lazy. I thank God that I'm not ugly. I even thank God that the pigs on the farm don't stink too much. Suddenly a book is flying in the air. It hits Ruby right in the face. A pimply-faced college student on the other side of the waiting room who had been hearing this terrible Thanksgiving has thrown a textbook at Ruby Turpin, hit her in the nose. The title of the book now lying on the floor Human Growth and Development. Well, as Providence would have it, that little violence becomes a turning point in Ruby's life where she discovers saving grace. But think about Ruby's virtue for just a moment. Gratitude. O'Connor, the writer, was making the point that the church is especially susceptible to enlisting God in our wicked program of worldly gratitude all for the purpose of trying to establish our own righteousness before him. That's what the Pharisee is doing in our text. Ruby was so happy she was not like the people she despised. It is what, in fact, drew her closer to God and assured her she was acceptable to God. She was as blind as a bat and as wicked as a worm until the Lord brought her low. Beloved, I want to now turn all this upside down and look at two signs in the text that we are indeed trusting God alone for our righteousness. The first sign you are trusting God alone for your righteousness is that you believe you are unworthy to approach God. Look at the tax collector in verse 13. He stands far off, the text says. Beloved, don't, don't make a mistake here. This is the word of God. Every detail is essential to our Lord's teaching his church. And this is a parable of the Lord. He has crafted these details himself so that we would get snagged on each one 
and not miss its lesson. He stands far off. He, like the Pharisee, has come to the temple. He, like the Pharisee, is within the privileged court of Israel. But he, unlike the Pharisee, is standing far off at the back, away from the temple. This tax collector knows himself. He has judged himself truly. He has not falsified the evidence. He knows he is unworthy to approach God. This is why he does not lift his eyes up to heaven. This is why he repeatedly is beating his breast in great sorrow. He is throwing the book at himself. And what book is that? The law of God. Because he knows the holiness of God. He knows the lawlessness of his own life. He is not looking at other men in order to measure his life. He is looking at the law of God to measure himself, and he is coming up woefully, dreadfully, sorrowfully short. Within yourself, you are unworthy to approach God. Do you know it? Do you know this? The tax collector is meant to show us the true way to think about ourselves before God when we stand before him as moral creatures. We have nothing within ourselves to show off to God. Nothing within ourselves to wave and shimmer before him that will catch his eye and incline him to accept us. You know, it is one of the great steps of wisdom in a man's life, in a woman's life, when they finally come to discover how strong in their flesh is a temptation not to be known among other people as a needy sinner. I have met grandparents who are just discovering this, that they have spent 30 years trying to avoid having their grandchildren discover that they are needy, desperate sinners, and that the law of God finds them woefully, sorrowfully coming up short. They've spent years wanting their grandchildren to think of them as the good people. Well, they should do good. They should, in fact, do more good than they are doing. But they are not doing anything but lying to their own posterity to keep the secret that they are desperate, needy sinners who, if they really knew themselves and regarded themselves alone in their own moral resume, they would have to beat their breast and weep before the law of a holy God. Why is it we want to be known as only good men among other men? Why is it that we are ashamed and embarrassed to be known the way this tax collector is being made known to us? I know why. I think you know why. We are embarrassed to be known in this way because this way, this true way, decimates our self-righteousness. 
It decimates and removes us from all the ranking that men of the flesh use and enjoy to tell themselves they're okay. This way pulls us out of the whole system and leaves us with a cross and the Christ and the body and the blood. It's humiliating, but it's the best humiliation because those who will be humbled by it, the text says before us, shall be exalted, not by their own righteous deeds, but by those of another. Beloved, remember this. The tax collector's approach to God does not remain the approach of those who come to God bearing Christ by faith. The Lord shows us this tax collector, so we will know that if we have truly measured our own lives, this is the only way we can approach God. However, if we have truly measured the mercies of God toward us in Christ, Christ crucified and risen in our own flesh, if we have rightly measured his love and forgiveness, we can, in fact, approach God boldly with our eyes up and open, even though we know now that we are greater sinners than when we first believed. Hebrews 4 speaks of this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with boldness draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We don't take the boldness from our moral resume. That should only weaken us. We take the boldness from our great high priest who says, draw near through me. I am your surety. I am your salvation. I am your justification. Do you see it? Then come boldly. Our membership vow in this congregation captures quite beautifully how these two aspects of our standing before God, the unworthiness within ourselves and the worthiness in Christ are joined together. Here's the membership vow. Do you confess that because of your sinfulness, you abhor and humble yourself before God, that you repent of your sin and that you trust for salvation, not in yourself, but in Jesus Christ alone? Did you know that the worst of sinners can be the happiest of sinners? The men who have the worst record, the men who are almost on the edge of weeping on a regular basis because of how much sin is even yet in their life, they can also be the happiest of sinners because their hope is not in themselves. It is in Christ. Now there is a second sign that you are trusting in God for your righteousness and not in yourself. And here it is. You believe that your only claim before God is his mercy. Look at how short and simple is the prayer of the tax collector. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I hope you hear that a lot at home. I hope you hear that a lot from your dad. I hope you hear that a lot from your mom. That, beloved, is a God-glorifying prayer. That, beloved, is a true judgment of the sinner kind of prayer. 
God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And your grandkid might say, oh, come on, Pop, how are you a sinner? And then your answer might teach them about sins they never knew. Pride, covetousness, arrogance. The very sins the Lord went rooting for with his hoe and trowel in the Sermon on the Mount. This tax collector has no long list to recite where he is attempting to leverage God's favor. He speaks not of the good things he has done. He speaks not of the evil things he has avoided doing. He does not mention those who might be judged. Excuse me, he does not mention those who might be judged by men who are worse than himself. He does not mention Hitler. No, he understands that before God, he is the worst sinner he knows. He is a man under the law, a transgressor. And what do the scriptures say? Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The tax collector knows that there is a God. And the God who is, is holy. And the tax collector is not. His only claim before God is a claim for God's mercy. God, be merciful to me. The Greek word the Lord uses here for mercy is a very instructive word for the church. It literally can be translated, God, be propitiated toward me. Or God, let thine anger be removed from me would be a very literal translation. Beloved, this is a sinner fully alive to the truth of who he is and who the living God is and what the living God delights to give. Now, it is true that some Christians fall into a perpetual restlessness before God, where even many years after faith in Christ, they are still approaching God like this tax collector, without confidence and unsure of God's love for them. But hear this, beloved. Such who suffer this are almost always looking somewhere in themselves for assurance that God loves them. They are either looking at their works or they are looking at the depth of their repentance. Neither of those are places to look for evidence that God loves you, that God forgives you, that God is reconciled to you. Neither of those are places to look. You are to look to Christ Jesus alone. Even your repentance can never be the satisfaction for your sins. This is standard 101 doctrine in our Westminster Confession of Faith. Even your tears of sorrow for all that you have done are not the place to look for satisfaction that God has removed his anger from you. Robert Murray McShane said, I ought to confess the sins of my confessions. Their imperfections 
their sinful aims, their self-righteous tendency, etc. And I ought to look then to Christ as having confessed my sins perfectly over his own sacrifice. Beloved, that is great advice for those who are frequently lacking assurance. Christ has confessed your sins perfectly over his own sacrifice. What is wrong with the Pharisee is not the good he has done. What is wrong with the Pharisee is what he does with the good he has done. The Pharisee takes his own goodness and waves it before the nose of God, expecting God to accept him for his goodness. Does the Pharisee need to become a more noticeable sinner then in order to be justified? Does he need to do more corrupt things? Of course not. The Pharisee is already a sinner. He is already a greater sinner than he knows in need of mercy from God. His problem is not that he is really too righteous. His problem is that he does not know how unrighteous he is. Does the tax collector then need to stop being a tax collector? No. Does the soldier need to stop being a soldier? No. Does the politician need to stop being a politician? Do the men and women who have to live and get their hands dirty in the world need to stop living in the world? No. We need to stop sinning. That's what we need. And we need the grace that not only forgives our sinning, but can bring it to an end. Is the goal to become so much better that we don't need divine mercy anymore? No. (laughs) We will never achieve such a status. We will always be guilty. We will always have reason to mourn we will always be poor in spirit. We will always be merce- meek and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Blessed are those who are mourning. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for they have a Savior who answers. Beloved, let us remember that this tax collector boasts in nothing good that he has done. It reminds me of what one pastor said, that the irreligious don't repent at all, and the religious only repent of sins, but Christians repent even of their righteousness. J.C. Ryle said, what does it cost to be a true Christian? It will cost a man his self-righteousness. He must cast away all pride and high thoughts and conceit of his own goodness. He must be content to go to heaven as a poor sinner, saved only by free grace and owing all to the merit and righteousness of another. Remember the Pharisee did not go home justified. That is a resounding warning to all who are part of the visible church of Jesus Christ, who live by looking down their noses at other sinners and use the weaknesses of other sinners in the church or in the world to assure themselves that they are surely the ones acceptable to God. It is a Christless gospel, and it will never be rewarded. 
Beloved, let us think of better things. Those who are broken and weary by the weight of sin in their life have everything they need to seek the mercy that covers all of their guilt and recovers them on the way of new life in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Forgive us, Lord, of our self-righteousness. We thank you that the Savior even covers with his blood the great sin of self-righteousness. But Lord, we pray that you would truly put it to death in us, that we would, even ourselves, receive a grace to take up the fight, to put a stake through it, to mortify it, to even have the grace to inquire at home if we are a contemptuous person, if we are a snooty person. Oh, Lord, let us not be afraid of the truth. Give us the grace for these things. Oh, gracious Lord, bring us to rest in our soul, in our spirit, not on things we find in ourselves in comparison to other men, but bring us to rest upon Jesus Christ in all the good and glorious things we find in him. He who was obedient unto death, he who was humiliated for the worst of sinners, even self-righteous sinners, bring us to rest upon him. And Lord, set such a strong grace in our hearts as we look upon him that we would be ashamed to rival him in any way. Help us in Jesus' name, amen.